Okay, the reading today is from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 to 13, and that's in page 728 in the Church Bibles. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour, I give Egypt your, for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honoured in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and, take, and to the, the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove that they were right, so that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant who I am chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witness, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, Who can reverse it? Let's ask for God's help, though, as we begin. We pray, our Father, that as we reflect on your incomparable nature and the incomparable salvation you bring, that you would help us to see you as you are. For we ask this by the strength of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the subject we're thinking about this evening is the one I just mentioned there. It's the subject of salvation. Salvation is something that Christians talk about a lot. We sing about salvation. We've already done so tonight. We talk about salvation with those around us. But actually, when you think about it, the idea of salvation is not unique to Christians. Other world religions have their idea of salvation, whether it be the five pillars of Islam or the sevenfold path of enlightenment uh, with with Buddhists. Uh, They have this kind of idea of salvation. And it's not just our kind of religious world. Our non-religious secular culture has its version of salvation as well. Um, I get into trouble for sounding like I watch TV all the time, but I watched another program last week uh, about how to live to a hundred. Anyone seen this? 
No. Well, there we are. <laughs> um, I'm quite an outlier on my TV choices. But, but it's this idea, uh, this presenter goes round to these places called blue zones, these places where they have an unusually high amount of people over 100. And as he does, he notes down all the different things they eat, all the different things they do. And at the end, he presents this kind of path to you, live into 100. If you follow these things, then maybe you'll live to 100. And I was watching it, thinking to myself, this is a, a kind of advert for salvation. Follow these steps, and then you will reach the salvation of reaching 100. Maybe that's not your thing, it probably isn't, but maybe you've heard of X Factor or Strictly, perhaps I'm on safer ground there. But you'll know in those programs, uh, they have these kind of backstories, don't they? About how people's lives are really difficult. Normally it goes to black and white, and you get this kind of story about their lives and all the challenges they face. And then you have this moment where they talk about their desire to sing and be recognized, and this path to salvation is kind of spelt out for them. See, we're not the only ones that are seeking salvation. Every single one of us, whether we're religious or not, is craving that better life, that happiness. Which makes things difficult, I think, for Christians today. Because when we talk about salvation, when we talk about why Jesus is so important it can sound like he's one of many choices. Yes, Christians talk about salvation, but there are all sorts of paths to finding kind of happiness and joy. What makes him any different to any of those things? Well, that's the question that stands behind our passage this evening, because uh, in this passage, God speaks into this idea of salvation. Uh, we saw last week, didn't we, that the, where we're coming to in Isaiah... Uh, the nation, or what's left of it, is facing a huge challenge. It's got this rising superpower, Babylon, on their borders. And they're getting closer and closer. And as they do, people are becoming more and more fearful. And they're asking this question, can our God really save? And in fact, some people are looking around at the other gods of the other nations, thinking, uh, is it better to throw my lot in with them? I mean, they seem to have all the power. They seem to succeed. What makes our God so special? And God writes this passage this evening to convince us of one thing. Um, the headline comes in verse 11. If you're um, you know, not coping with the heat and you're going to drop off this evening, just remember verse 11. So you've got my permission to sleep. Uh, verse 11 is where you want to come back to, uh, where he says... I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. See, that is what God wants to convince his people of. That's what he wants to convince you of this evening, that there is no Savior apart from him. Why? Well, we're going to see this evening. First of all, because of the extent of God's mercy. And secondly, we're going to see because of the evidence of God's mercy. First of all, the extent. Secondly, the evidence. And then we're going to think, how do we respond? I wonder how many opportunities you would give someone who ignores you. I think some of the kids call it ghosting. Am I right? But ghosting 
is where someone cuts you off. They don't return your calls, your texts, they blank you. I wonder if you've ever been in that painful situation where that's happened to you. How many chances do you give that person? One, two, three, four maybe? Well, ghosting is what God's people have done to God at this point for centuries. Uh, Look back over the page to how God describes his people. He calls them his servant in verse 19. And he says this about them. Who is blind but my servant? Who is deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me? Blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things but have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. His people have done the equivalent of the school bully. Uh, The school bully who knows the worst thing to inflict on someone is to ignore them completely. And so they cover their eyes, they put their fingers in their ears, and they shun them. And God says, my people have done that with me. And eventually, God gives them over to their desires. As they turn their back on him, he hands them over to their autonomy. But look at how it's turned out in verse 22. He says, This is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits, hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. That great dream of going alone has turned into a nightmare as the people hit rock bottom, plundered, oppressed. But into that darkness comes this chapter, chapter 43. Uh, At the start of chapter 43 comes two most tender words that change the whole picture. As God says, but now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. See, this God they've ignored, this God they've pushed out. Now listen to what he says about them. I formed you. At that word, it comes from the world of pottery as um, a, a, a potter uh, puts a lump of clay on their kind of whatever you call it, spindle. And they, they mold the clay and they produce a beautiful pot and they kind of put it on display and they take pride in it. That's the kind of idea here. God says, look, I formed you. It's a very intimate word. Or that idea, summoning by name. It's not a kind of bad summoning, like I used to hear quite a word, Rob, get here now. It's not that sort of idea. It's the idea of a parent giving a name to a child. If you've ever done that, you'll know how difficult it is, how much you care about doing it right. I remember going to the council offices, giving the name over, getting the certificate, taking a photo with the baby, outside. It's a a proud moment. And God says, I have summoned you like that. I've given you your name. See, despite the people turning their back on God, God will not turn his back on them. Look at what he says about them in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Uh, You may notice this, but there's a kind of echo here of Exodus chapter 3. As God reveals himself, he says, I am the Lord. And he says it again here, and it's almost that little 
sign or kind of Easter egg to point us back to Exodus and say, look, those promises then still stand. I'm still your God. I'm still committed to you. And because of that commitment, look at the compassion he has on them in verse 2. He says that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. See, the the picture of water in the Old Testament and fire is quite often judgment. Uh, Water terrified people in the ancient world. It was kind of chaotic. And fire, well, it's pretty scary today as it was then. And both those pictures are used of this coming threat of Babylon to say, These things are coming, but notice what God says. They will not sweep over you. You will not drown. You will not be burned. Often my kids, um, when they're out with me, they get into a kind of terrifying situation. Not terrifying, it's a bit strong, but but, a scary situation. Maybe it's a bit dark, or maybe there's something they don't want to do, or a climbing frame they don't want to go up. And um, quite often... uh, I'll kind of push them through that situation, um, you know, like dads do. And um, the way I tend to do it is not just kind of chuck them in, but grab them by the hand and say, look, it's okay. Daddy's here. I'm with you. I'll get you through this. And it's that kind of idea here. God's not going to stop this coming, but he will be with them. He will be there as their father, grabbing them by the hand, saying, it's okay. I'm with you. See, this is a God who saves way over what we can imagine. He's got every right to throw the book at his people, every right to turn his back on them and reject them. But what does he do? He keeps his commitment to his people. He saves them even when they don't want saving. See, God is merciful beyond our imagining. And what is true for Israel is true for you and me now in Jesus. See, because what of Jesus has done in his death, because of what he achieved, these promises God makes here can be said of you and me. Uh, Paul, the apostle, writes in Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And the author of the Hebrews writes later about God. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I don't want to embarrass anyone, but you could read your name into this. This is what the Lord God says. He who created you, O whoever. He who formed you, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. So coming back to that question we asked at the beginning, um, what makes God's salvation any different to anyone else's? Well, here's a big part of the answer. Because we see just the incomparable extent of his salvation. As I said, there are lots of paths to salvation in our religious world or non-religious world. But the thing that they have in common is they all rely on me to do it. So after watching this program, I thought to myself, well, I've got to eat this stuff, I've got to exercise this much, and then I might live to 100. 
It's probably not going to happen, let's be honest. Or you watch the X Factor and you think to yourself, well, I've got to work at my talents to be truly recognized as they are. But actually, those things focus on me and my ability. And if I don't do it, well, I lose out on my salvation. But God says his salvation doesn't rely on my ability to carry it out. It relies on his ability to do it. His commitment to his people. The fact that he has chosen you in Jesus. Even when I make God an enemy, even when I turn my back on him, God says, I am your savior. Doesn't mean, of course, that we kind of reject God. It doesn't mean that we're casual about how we treat God. The New Testament warns us many times. But it does mean that my confidence comes from him and his ability to save me. I wonder, do you see that this evening? Very easy to imagine God as kind of putting across a huge amount of burdens that I've got to kind of fulfill to be saved. But God says, first of all, I have done it. You are mine. But how do we know that? How do we have any confidence that that is true? Well, secondly, we're going to see, and a bit shorter, this, uh, these next two points. We're going to see, in the second half, God goes on to prove his compassion. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan of the courtroom drama. Perhaps you've seen A Few Good Men. Anyone seen that? I think it's a 90s film. One person, great. That flopped. Um, perhaps Rooney versus Vardy. Anyone follow that? Yes, a few more people. Um, the courtroom drama, maybe you're a fan, maybe you're not, but but chapter, the second half of chapter 43, verse 8 onwards, is a courtroom drama. Uh, the court assembles in verses 8 and 9, God's people come, and the whole world assembles to the courtroom. And the question this court is asking comes in the second half of verse 9. It's basically this, what God is able to save? It's all very well and good offering salvation. It's all very good telling about your commitment. But can you actually prove it? And maybe we're asking that question ourselves. Maybe we hear of God's compassion, his commitment. Perhaps we hear of you know, the interview earlier and how God's worked in someone's life. And we wonder to ourselves, can I really trust that? Can I really know that's true? And the court, after this question is asked, goes silent. No other gods come forward. But God comes forward in verse 10 and presents his evidence in verse 12. And this is it. He says, I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I and not some foreign god among you. See, what God's saying there is that he doesn't just speak about salvation. Notice those three things. He reveals, he saves, and he proclaims. So he doesn't do his kind of salvation in secret. It's public knowledge. Um, Take, for example, the Exodus, that moment where God's people were rescued from Egypt. There was a big pre-match build-up, wasn't there? As God called Moses told Moses what he was going to do in Egypt, and as Moses told Pharaoh. But it wasn't just pre-match build-up. There was a match as God sent the plagues on Egypt and rescued his people through the Red Sea. 
And then since then, he has proclaimed that event. It's not Moses' interpretation. It's not some sort of interpretation by someone. It is God's interpretation as he proclaims that to future generations. See, God's act of salvation isn't done behind closed doors. It was done in Egypt in the most powerful nation the world had seen at that point. It was done in front of everyone so that everyone could see that God wasn't just a God who spoke about salvation, but a God who declared it, who acted it, and spoke about it. See, God's evidence is that he actually does these things in real time and space. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, that was a long time ago. What about now? Well, God says this sign points to a far greater exodus that is achieved in Jesus' death and resurrection. See, when Jesus comes, he doesn't just come out of the blue. There is a big build-up to his arrival. For centuries, uh, from the dawn of time, uh, God promises a saviour. Right back in Genesis chapter 3, he says there'll be one who comes who treads on the serpent and defeats it. And when Moses comes, he declares, Moses, that there will be a prophet greater than him who will follow. And in Isaiah chapter 53, if you read on a couple of chapters, you'll see that there's a servant who will come who will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And then when Jesus comes, he says about himself, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as he dies, he says to the thief next to him, truly you will be with me in paradise. And then three days later, he rises to prove his salvation. Uh, The first thing he says to his disciples who have forsaken him is, peace be with you. And then since the cross, it has been proclaimed throughout the world. See, where's evidence of God's salvation? Well, God's answer is, look at the cross. There you see it revealed, enacted, and proclaimed. See, I hope you see that when we speak about salvation, we're not talking about kind of wishful thinking here. We're not trying to sort of say, actually, we hope that things are going to be all right in the end. It's not that sort of stuff. Nor is it the idea that actually uh, we're kind of imagining what God will do. See, rather, Christians are responding to what God has declared in his word, shown in real time and space, and proclaimed through the centuries. If you're a scientist, you might say it's testable. Uh, It's an act that you can examine. It's evidence. It it happened in our real world. If we went back enough time, we would have seen it. Or if we were born in a different time, we would have seen it. See, how do I know God is like a saviour like no other? Well, because he's evidenced that salvation in the cross. God shows his saviour like no other in the extent of his mercy. Secondly, in the evidence of his mercy. And as we close, let's just think about how we should respond to this this evening. I won't keep you much longer. I know we're frying as I speak. But 
But I just want to, to, to think about two things that God gets us uh, to respond to here. Uh, I think two things come up. First of all, to change our minds, and then secondly, to change our hearts. See, God wants us to change our minds. He wants us to be convinced of verse 11, that there is no other saviour. The salvation that Christians speak of is not like the salvation around our world. It is a salvation that doesn't rest on you and me, but on what God has already done. It is a salvation that isn't some sort of wishful thinking. It isn't X factor, but it is shown in real time and space as done. And it's a salvation that goes way beyond what we can imagine in this life. Yes, we might live to 100 if we eat vegetables and greens and all sorts of... They are vegetables, aren't they? Greens and beans and all sorts of things. But, but actually, you know, that's only living to 100. God promises eternal life and unending joy through him. But then it's not just our heads, it's our hearts. See, look at how the people are feeling. Verse 1, he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Or verse 5, he says, do not be afraid. See, God's very tender with his people, isn't he? He knows their fears. He knows that they look at their circumstances and they're tempted to look to other things. And God's answer to that is not to take them out of their situation. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to protect you from the waters, I'm going to stop the fire. But he says, when you go through them, I will be with you. See, because of Jesus, because of the fire that fell on him, the waters of judgment that he took, we can be absolutely confident that we need not fear any circumstance. Because whatever this world can throw out of us, whatever we might face, no matter how dark things get, God says, I will be with you. Nothing is out of his control. Nothing can defeat his purposes of salvation. As he says in verse 13, when I act, who can reverse it? I don't know about you, but it's so tempting, I think, when I start to fear my circumstances, to look to all the things I can do about it. So if I'm fearful about the resources I might have or might not have, I think, well, I've got to get up my bank balance. Or um, if I'm fearful of, um, you know, whether I'm going to be able to cope with a particular challenge, I get out my diary and try to, you know, fix things. Uh, I try and look for all the things that might uh, give me the strength to go through. Very rarely do I look to the Lord first. But this reminds me of how foolish that is. Because I am in Jesus, I know that I am truly safe in him. And that whatever I face, I have God with me. And he is a saviour, unlike any of the other things I might look to. As we finish, it'd be good to ask ourselves how we remind ourselves of who God is. We've seen some incredible things about our God. How am I going to get this into my heart? Perhaps it's worth taking verse 2 and saying that to ourselves. When you go through the waters, I will be with you. And how do I help others? There will be people in our church family, even this evening, who are facing the flood waters, who are facing the fire. And we need to be the sort of church that can go alongside people and say, God is with you. He will get you through this. As we finish, here's some words from the famous song, How Firm a Foundation.
when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we see of your character here, the salvation that you bring, the extent of your mercy, the evidence for it. And we pray, Father, as a church, we would be those who respond rightly, who have absolute confidence in the Lord Jesus for what he has done for us. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Well, we've got a few questions. I think we want to start. Um, hopefully this is going to work. Nothing's happening. Anyway, I'm going to read it to you instead because it's... Yes, on there. Is it coming up? It's not responding to me. But uh, I just wanted to... The comments that someone's... It's not a question... But thank you for showing me that God calls me precious and honoured in my sight because, and because I love you. It's a truth I really value hearing this evening. I think actually probably all of us uh, feel that. And, um, you know, thank you. Um, and uh, thank, thank the Lord for his work and how that's respond, we've responded to it. Um, right, most voted... How can we be sure that he means all these things for us today, Rob? Thank you. We aren't the Israelites. Really good question. No, we're not the Israelites as defined here. But the way the Bible works is um, what the theologians call progressive revelation. Um, What they mean by that is um, the Bible is a bit like a kind of, if you imagine a mountain range... Um, and a series of mountains that kind of get bigger and bigger as you go through the Bible. So I mentioned Exodus, that's a kind of small mountain, uh, and um, God reveals his salvation there. But there's a new mountain in Isaiah, as God says, that Exodus point back into, uh, that he points back to, is going to happen again, and that happens with Babylon. Uh, but that mountain is overshadowed by an even bigger mountain, which is Jesus, uh, as he points back to those uh, two mountains, you're still with me on this, mountains, uh, and then actually shows that his mountain is even bigger. Um, if that doesn't work, imagine like a kind of film series that kind of gets a re- redone. So the Batman series, the old films were rubbish, weren't they? Uh, the 80s ones. The Nolan ones, even better. And, you know, the Robert Patterson one, I've really enjoyed that. Uh, I don't know, that may not work as well. But you kind of get echoes of the previous event and it gets bigger and bigger as we go through the Bible. So God starts off with a small nation, Israel. Uh, but actually, as you go through the Bible, as you go through the mountains, you start to see that actually uh, what God promises to Israel, actually he's going to extend to the whole world. And um, as you get to the New Testament, you realize that actually Israel is far bigger than one sort of group of people. It is the whole world or everyone in Christ, rather. Um, just to show you an example of that, there are many examples. Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or Abraham's offspring, uh, then heirs according to promise. So Abraham was the first Israelite. He was the, the kind of um, first one who started this all off. And, God, uh, and Paul says, if you're in Christ, you're part of Abraham's family. You're an Israelite. So that's a long way of answering, but to say yes, everything 
said of Israel here, we can read for us as we look back through the mountain of Jesus. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Some of these, I think, also might relate, but this one is, how should verse 2 be understood in the light of the fact that Jerusalem was eventually burnt to the ground and the people taken captive to Babylon? Yeah, thank you. Um, So, again, coming back to the mountains, uh, one of the things God's doing as he goes through the mountains is to show that actually what was a kind of physical place uh, is actually pointing to a far bigger promise. So um, he starts off with Jerusalem, uh, but actually Jerusalem turns his back on them and Jerusalem gets scattered. Uh, But at the same time that happens, God promises a new Jerusalem. Uh, And this Jerusalem isn't the one, you know, uh, in our world, it's not a kind of physical Jerusalem. It's a, it's a Jerusalem which is God's people. It's the church. And he promises that in the new creation, uh, that will be the new Jerusalem. So again, a bit complicated. We're going through the mountains. But, but that judgment on the Jerusalem of the Old Testament is a pointer to the fact that God is actually building a far bigger Jerusalem, not a physical one. Uh, in the sense of, you know, a capital city of Israel, but in the sense of his people, uh, the people of God. Come and ask me afterwards. I realize that's covering a lot of ground. Yes. So God, for for example, Revelation 21 says, heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Rupert. (laughs) Can you manage one more? Yep, why not? (laughs) Okay. So how and when are verses... Four to seven fulfilled for the people Isaiah was speaking to. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Yeah. Mountains. <laughs> so, um, I think first and foremost, they're expressing God's commitment. And when you read them, they're a little bit like, oh, hang on a minute, what does that mean? Because God says, because I love you, I will give you men in exchange for you, and I will give um, nations in exchange for you. Um, but actually, what you see happens after this is that God... Um, judges Babylon, and he, by doing that, he gives over his people to freedom. So he's saying that actually, even this mighty empire of Babylon, I will give them an exchange for you. Uh, but again, that's just one mountain. It's pointing, remember, to the bigger mountain, which is Jesus. So, uh, and there we see that God doesn't just give over Babylon for his people. He gives over his own son, uh, which is an incredible picture here of actually how much God loves us. So John 3.16, one of the most famous verses, says, this is how we know love, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Great. Thank you, Rob. On that note, that would be great to uh, 